moot for a while. This is the sixth time that we have visited the book of Luke, moving our way through chunk by chunk, if you will, section by section. We're going to pick up where we left off, and this will be the end of Luke 6, because we'll take it from verses 43 through 49. Seven power-packed verses here. Uh, Luke 43 through 49. I've been really looking forward to teaching on this text. Uh, I know what I, all Scripture is given by God. All Scripture is inspired. All Scripture. But some Scriptures, the enemy, I feel, attacks more than others. Uh, and as I prepared this week, I felt some of the attacks in myself and some of you, uh, some that aren't even here this morning that I know uh, unexpected sickness or illness or things. Uh, and this is one of those passages I know the enemy does not want taught on. Uh, it is one of those passages that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us uh, that many pulpits, frankly, in America don't teach on. Uh, but we're not going to do that. We're going to always go verse by verse through the Scriptures. And what the Lord gives us is for our benefit, not for our destruction. Amen? Isn't that great to know? Uh, God didn't give us these difficult things to disturb us, uh, but He gave us these difficult things to deepen us in Him. So we'll pick up uh, with verse 43. Passages you've probably heard before, maybe not for a while, but let's look at the text together. Starting in verse 43. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks, or hers. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep. And laid the foundation on the rock, and when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Father, we know that your word says, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. And Lord, we know that our spiritual house, our own salvation, our own soul and spirit, Lord, we know that uh, this temple of the Lord, the house, the church that you have built, Lord, all of these things, unless you build it, we indeed labor in vain. But Lord, we know that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against your church, and your saints if we are grounded and rooted in you. Lord, we ask and we pray that you would just bless this study. And Lord, even now I also pray for our nation. Lord, our nation, very much like this text, says one thing but lives another. 
And we pray that you would bring revival. We pray that you would pour out your spirit, that you'd revive our nation. You'd open the eyes and the ears, even of our religious leaders, some of which don't know you, but yet still teach your word. Some of which, Lord, are leading your people astray. Some of which are saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Lord, we pray that you would bring truth and clarity and wisdom of the word wisdom of the Spirit, you would speak mightily by your Spirit in these days in which we live, and Lord, even this morning, you would strengthen us for the work you've put before us, that none of us, Lord, would be bearing bad fruit, but we would, also be, we would all be bearing fruit unto eternal life and righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you notice, I went ahead and prayed for our revival. I didn't have you stand, but we consolidated today. If, uh, if, you're take, uh, if you're here this morning, you're taking notes. I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, Everyone is Tested. Everyone is Tested. And you can take that in a number of different ways, but let me apply it this way to start off with. We all at least went to grade school. There was a time in America where people were done with school about the age of the eighth grade. Uh, and in many ways, they were much better educated then than our kids today. And I'm not saying that uh, with tongue-in-cheek. That's, that's legitimate. Uh, many studies have proven that. But no matter what level of school you went in, there was a time where you got tested. And you couldn't, opt, you couldn't say to the teacher, well, I don't think I should get tested. The rest of the 26 kids in the class, they should all get tested, but not me, because if you know my dad, and my parents have a certain standing, or we have this, or we have that, uh, or I don't really need, haven't I proven, I've, haven't I pro I've raised my hand in class a few times, haven't I proven enough? No, everyone's going to be tested. Everyone's going to be examined. Everyone is going to find out one way or the other, and, and there's going to be someone in an authoritative position who's going to determine, yes, you know the material, and you have passed, and you can move forward, or you do not. And Jesus, when he looks at your life and my life, and everyone else's life, even people that don't go to church, oh, I, don't go to, I don't go to church, that more means I don't answer to Jesus. Not true. You may not know him, but everyone will meet him one day. We talked about before that there'll be two places that everyone will meet the Lord. Two places of final examination, either the judgment seat of Christ, which is for believers, or the great white throne judgment is for all those that said, not for me. I don't have time. I've got better things to do. I don't believe this message. Whatever your answer is, everyone, same as it is in school. It does not matter if you say, well, I'm not going to take the test. You'll get a zero. To not take the test is to take the test. Everyone will be tested. And then in another sense, all of us are tested by life, aren't we? No matter who you are, everybody gets colds, everybody gets flus, everyone has bad days at work, everybody gets flat tires, everybody has things that happen to them that they're outside of their control, and they test us. People that don't like you, people that said something you didn't like, things that just don't seem to go your way, all of the things in life test us. And those also examine. But in both cases, before the end of our life and during our life, the Lord is always inspecting everyone, whether they know it or not. I've come to know the Lord is always inspecting me. 
right? I have three kids. I love them dearly, but we are always inspecting and understanding their lives. What's happening? How are they doing? Let's take a look at this first section here. If you're taking notes, I've divided the text into three things, which is my habit. Uh, The fruit test, the following test, and the foundation test. The fruit test, the following test, and the foundation test. Now, this is not a test to find out if you are a fruit cake or something like that. This is a test of fruit in your life. You can actually be a bit of a fruitcake and still love the Lord. God gives us different personalities and different styles. But uh, the Lord is looking at our lives, and other people will be able to see, too, fruit that's in our life. You know, you may not be, let's look at this first section, and Jesus says here in Luke 6, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. That's a very straightforward, simplistic Basic statement. Good fruit, easy to see. Bad fruit, equally easy to see. You may not have a green thumb. Some of you, you've learned that many times over. You do not have a green thumb. Try as you might. Learn as you can. Study. Watch HGTV. Whatever it is you do, and you still seem to come up with some of the same results. But sometimes you see improvement. You may not be a gardener or a farmer. Russ talked about we're doing a day at Hamilton Farm. Uh, You'll get a chance to learn a few things, some of which you'll never be able to apply in a suburban home like mine, but nevertheless. uh, uh, You may not be an expert in horticulture, but pretty much anybody can recognize good fruit versus bad fruit versus no fruit, right? If I come up to a tree and There's good fruit on the tree, there's not good fruit on the tree, there's zero fruit on the tree. Those things are, as long as we have eyesight, those things are evident. Our family, no one's ever trained me, my wife, or any of our daughters, we have never been trained in apples of any type. I have never studied anything about apples, Uh, but when we go up to Carter's Mountain in the fall, somehow we seem to know which apples to pick. Without anyone educating us, well, they just give you a bag. They just give you a bag and say, have at it. Here's how much you pay. You weigh them at the end. Anyone done this thing? You go up there, and you seem to know, all right, that smushy one, I'm not touching. The one on the ground that has worm running through it, I don't want that one. But there's a shiny, hard one, and you just pull it right off, and you put it in the bag. No one had to train anybody. I don't even think I told my kids, hey, don't pick any rotten ones. And Jesus knows that this is evident. The same is observable in spiritual fruit. The same is observable. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Take a right-hand turn. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Go past the Gospels, past Acts, past Romans, past 1 and 2 Corinthians, a few more. Or actually, right after 1 and 2 Corinthians. A few more pages, that is. And Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, starting with verse 19. You know this passage, or many of you do. If you don't know it, you'll see it's just as evident as picking fruit at Carter's Mountain. 
starting with uh, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Evident. Which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outburst of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Isn't that beautiful? Contrast? You don't have to be the apple expert. You don't have to be the spiritual fruit expert. If you are walking around in obvious sin, cursing out your next door neighbor or your coworker, or gossiping like crazy and then people can't get around you without you, you you fill in their ears with gossip, or uh, you're living in a moral lifestyle. You know, you've got all this evident things. Paul said these things are evident. You work with people that know the Lord, and you work with people that don't know the Lord. You have family members that know the Lord. You have family members that don't know the Lord. Uh, I had my, my brother uh, called me yesterday from Florida. He was doing a study, and he's asking me uh, some questions about the difference between apostle and disciple. We were talking about that, and I said, and I went into the, the definitions of apostle. I said, you know, you've got the strictest definition, which I believe in, uh, that the apostles were the original 12 minus 1 plus 2, which is the original 12. Judas, you know, falls away. Then you have Matthias and you have the apostle Paul. Those were the apostles. They were given the scriptures. They saw the Lord Jesus personally. I said, but then you have other believers that have some other views. They're not uh, heresy views. I don't I don't, uh, I don't share their views, but, uh, but they're okay within mainstream orthodoxy, and those are people that believe that apostles can be uh, senior, senior pastors or uh, bishops of bishops, if you will, or, or missionaries or church planters, that those can... And so I understand those definitions, and I, I have people that are brothers in Christ that have those uh, views of the word apostle. I don't. But nevertheless, we then talked about the word disciple. I said, and there's no real disagreement of what a disciple is, though. Because a disciple is someone who has really decided to follow Christ. And they've been radically changed. And that would include any Christian, the original 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles, and all disciples after them, all disciples after them are ones that would walk in the fruit of the Spirit. We would not live the way we used to live. Peter said we spent enough of our past lifetime living a certain way. Drunkenness, idolatries, abominations, all that stuff. You know, uh, those of you that go back and look at old pictures of yourself, you remember it all, right? And some of them you have to cut parts of the picture out, right? 
because that was the old life. That was the old way. That was when you were dominated by the lust of the flesh. You were still in darkness, but you've come into light. And so Jesus said, that tree, those two, those two views are readily visible. You don't have to train your kids to see a, a real good apple versus a nasty apple. And bad apples don't smell good either, by the way. And there's a difference in that too, because in 2 Corinthians 2.14, it says, we're the aroma of Christ. Uh, this is the time of year when as I go ride my bike or I'm exercising, I go out in the morning, that I smell honeysuckles everywhere. Aren't they great? Like All of our forest near our house is covered with them. I don't care if it goes and takes over every tree. It smells that good. Jasmine, all those different things, and uh, they're wonderful to smell, and you know, roses and all those things, they have a good aroma. But rotting fruit... And by the way, fruit comes from flowering plants, so they're very connected to each other. Matter of fact, when I, you study flowers, there's dozens of flowers you can eat. Every kind of rose you can eat. Every kind of rose. You can put it in, in, in foods and cook with it, and, uh, although you're best to grow it yourself because there's pesticides in everybody else's, but, not, but that is something that it's pretty cool that God has given us all these things. They have a great, they're beautiful to look upon. Think about the parallels. A, ro a rose, Jesus called the rose of Sharon. They're beautiful to look upon. They have a fragrance. They're actually edible. They actually add something good to you. And you can think of a Christian that actually is in the same way. They have an aroma of Christ. They add something. You can look at their life and actually say, that is a beautiful picture of grace. I remember how they used to be. And all these things... The Lord says you'll be able to see. Do you notice how often the Bible compares us to what is observable in agriculture? Does that strike you? If it doesn't, it will now because I've mentioned it. As you start to read, you'll start to see how often. In Psalm 1-3, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth what? It's fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. How about Psalm 92, verses 12 and 14? One of my favorite psalms. Uh, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They shall still bear, I love this part, they shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. Do you want to be fresh and flourishing in old age? Or do you want to be dying and rotting? Proverbs 24, 27, prepare your outside work. Make it fit for yourself in the field. Matthew 6, 28, Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. I could, I could go verse after verse after verse, dozens and dozens more, all throughout the Scripture, the agriculture. Now, some will say, and this is, a, this is, this is fact, some will say, you'll hear pastors or, or, or Bible teachers or theologians say, and the reason why all this is because that was an agrarian society. That's true. It was a much more agrarian society all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve and certainly in Christ's time and in the time of the judges and the time of the prophets. All the world was more agrarian that time. But if that's all that we would say about it, that the reason God uses all of these agricultural parallels is because at that time it was more agrarian society, then they would be of little value to us, to us today. But they have a lot of value to us today because we still see 
plants everywhere. We have windows. You look out, there's green leaves right beside you. You don't have to be a farmer to appreciate the corn that you eat on the grill. You don't have to be a botanist to actually appreciate someone giving you a dozen roses. All of these parallels, we still can see them today, whether it's picking apples in the orchards. Jesus said the fruits, the plants, the vegetables, the flowers, there will always be an FTD. There will always be a 1-800-Flowers. There will always be flowers. First thing you walk in Martin's, boom, there it is right on your left-hand side. You can't get past it. It's right there. There will always be God's handiwork reminding us, and nobody I've ever seen says, can I buy a stack of dead flowers, please? I want, the dead, I want the ugliest dead ones you have. Yes, we've marked them down to 50 cents. Give these to your wife. You might get a good deal. It might be a bad deal in the end, if you know what I mean, guys. See, we know what the genuine is. We know what good fruit looks like. We know what the, something that has grown and God's blessed it and it's beautiful as Pastor Chuck used to say, and I love this, he's the first person I had ever seen say it, and perhaps someone else said it before him, but he said, the Christian life is a garden, not a factory. The Christian life is a garden. We grow. We're not manufactured. That's for Fords and Chevrolets and iPhones and stuff. We our gardens are or in a garden. We grow. That's why the Bible will continue to use uh, these agricultural metaphors. We need deep roots, don't we? We need deep roots. We need to be planted. Deep roots, you can't plant yourself. You buy a plant, you can sit it there like I have in the backyard, and it will not plant itself. It'll sit there as long as you let it sit there. It'll die there. But if you plant it, and you and I with our salvation, we did not plant ourselves, we were planted. We accepted Christ. We believed in Him, but He plants us. We need deep roots. The roots, God puts the roots in. We need nourishing soil. We need the nourishing soil of His Word. We need the water of His Word, which is the Spirit Himself and the Word for growth and for refreshing we need the light of the sun, just like plants need the light of the S-U-N. We need the light of the S-O-N. We need the light of the sun. What do we need from that? Well, Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor. We need His wisdom. We need His truth. The whole world is full of lies. If you don't know the truth of Christ, you will be deceived by all kinds of things. We need His light. This one I thought of, I'd not, I'd not seen it in the, in the normal list, but the Lord, as I was kind of meditating on this, we need the shade of fellowship. The shade of fellowship. Many people today are neglecting this. Church attendance, as I've said, has dropped in half since the early 90s in the United States. Christians can't seem to make the time for fellowship because their schedules are too packed. God didn't pack their schedules. They packed their schedules. Or the enemy helped, or they did it all in concert. But the Lord has never said, I will not allow you to get together with other believers. It just ain't going to happen. And no, God gave us the shade of fellowship. We need one another. Iron sharpens iron. And the shade of fellowship, think about shade. 
What is shade? Well, shade is one plant shading another. In my backyard, as the sun goes around, the trees, they actually lay shade in different areas. I went and bought petunias. Petunias are native to South America. You guys know what petunias are. They come in a wide variety of colors, and they're fairly hardy if you do some minimal things to take care of them, at least in the summer months. They live well in the summer months because our temperatures are more like South America. And I bought some, and I was told... Now, I knew the basics. I knew I should plant them good, have a little fertilized, make sure that they're getting water. But I was told some, two things that I hadn't been told. Make sure you pick the dead ones out, and they'll really get big and flourishing. Make sure you pick the dead ones out. Said It takes a little bit of constant attention, I was told. But it's not hard. You just kind of go out and you pick a few of the dead ones out, and boom, they, they just blow up the, every day. They just, the flowers get real big. And the other one was they love afternoon shade, which I didn't know either. So I followed both, and I tell you, it actually worked. Who I was talking to knew what they were talking about. And you know, God does the same. He actually knows what he's talking about. You'll need the soil. You'll need the light. You'll need the shade of fellowship. I don't need fellowship. Yes, you do. You show me someone out of fellowship, I'll show you someone their spiritual walk is nowhere near what God has asked or called it to be. Someone outside, not in the Word, same thing. Not in prayer, same thing. Not in truth, but in error, same thing. All these things. And it goes on. We need, just like plants, we need to be pruned. Jesus said in John 15, 1 through 2, listen to what Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father's the vine dresser. Uh, another agricultural metaphor here, right? I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Any farmer wants to be more productive with their crop production, not less productive. More fruit. If it's bearing fruit, notice what he said. Did you catch that? Did you catch what Jesus said? Now, the ones that don't bear fruit, gone. Though That's the dead petunias. They're not, they're not living. Get, get them out of there so the life can spring forth. But he also said something else that's interesting. I'm not sure if you caught it, because at first I didn't. But the ones that are bearing fruit, he prunes that they would bear more fruit. He prunes those that are actually faithful and fruitful. He removes those that are neither, but those that are faithful and fruitful, he actually prunes. Now, first, this seems almost counterproductive. Why cut the fruitful branches? Not remove them, just trim them back. And it seems painful for the branch. And sometimes it is, isn't it? Sometimes it is painful to be pruned. And if you're a believer, you've gotten pruned plenty if you know the Lord and you walk in the Lord. He prunes us as individuals. He prunes us as a church. Why? That we might bear more fruit. This really works. Some of you ever trimmed your hedges? When you trim them, like box them, they will, they'll grow. They'll grow. They get, they get healthier. Uh, I had a bush. I've told you all before. I'll tell it again. 
I had, two, I had two bushes, they were yay big. One of them was near death's door. I thought it was going to lose it. It had trimmed, everything was dead. So I cut out all the dead, all of it. Got in there, cut out every dead. I had one-eighth of a bush left. And the other one looked great. But then I trimmed them both as if they were both eight-eighths. Today, they're the same size. It's amazing how God's... And the same is true with us. The person who's bearing just a little bit of fruit, even if there's just... Man, say, I can hardly see a flower on that person's life. <laughs> and God trims that little flower, and all of a sudden, they have three. If they're yielded, God will do the work. Sometimes, we're not pruned, we're actually chastened. That's even more fun than pruning. And usually, well, always with God, we deserve it, and it's going to be good for us. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son he receives. It's good for us to be pruned, but it's also good for us to be chastened. We need to be turned away. We're not real smart when we're not. When I was in business, um, one of our clients was a large utility, and uh, we, were, we were visiting one of our, the company I was with, one of our data centers. We were talking about data center security and all this stuff. They were talking about security from a nuclear perspective and, and uh, you know, double, double barbed wire fence and stuff. And, and they had these reserve areas for when hurricanes and storms come, and they've got all kinds of reserve uh, generators, all kinds of reserve uh, substation equipment, all these different things, and they also have huge coils of copper. And they had people, even though the signs say, high voltage, danger, serious injury or death could occur if you climb this fence, they had people to try and steal the copper die climbing the fence to get the copper. The sign is pretty clear. And God gives us a lot of signs as sons and daughters, and he says, don't go this way. And sometimes he'll chasten us. If you first grab the, the sharp part, that should be enough to warn you. But no, he'll continue. But at some point, we can actually go beyond the Lord's chastening. It's very, very destructive in our life. But the Lord, that's certainly not what he wants. He wants to bring us back that he would bless us. Now, if you say, I'm never chastened and I'm never pruned, that's not a good thing either. We want to be chastened. And we want to be pruned. I want to hear the Lord say to me things, and I have to say back, Lord, did I need to hear that? That's what happens when I read every morning in my own personal devotions. That's what happens when the Lord speaks to me. Lord, did I need to hear that? Because no matter how much you've grown, you can be more fruitful. More fruit can be grown. More pruning can take place. Let's look at the following test. The following test. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? One question we immediately have to ask is, why do we follow Jesus? Why? Why do we follow Jesus? And somebody says, well, that's an obvious answer. Why would you even ask such a silly question? It's not. Why do we follow Jesus? Well, Peter answered this question as good as anyone could ever answer it. Because Jesus asked him, you know, are you guys going to walk away from me like everyone else has? Or like a, a large multitude had just decided, this is too much. You're asking too much. I got other things that, that aren't near as 
uh, near as heavy, so I'm going to go focus on those. And, and Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Eternal life. You can't buy eternal life with Etna. You can't buy eternal life with New York life. You can't buy eternal life with a massive 401k nest egg. Those things don't do it. Peter said, you have the words to eternal life. And in Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's not another way. The first reason we follow Jesus is He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to be saved because everyone's going to die, and after that, the judgment. So there's no other way to be saved from the penalty of sin and death and hell but Jesus. So the first reason we follow Jesus is there's not another way. There's not another way. You can't do it through just, oh, I'm going to practice Buddhism, you practice your Christianity thing, and we'll both arrive at the same place. No, we won't. Not because I'm better or, or you're better because we're Christians. We're not. We're just sinners saved by grace. We openly admit we're the least deserving of heaven. But we're trusting in the blood and the mercy of Jesus Christ. There's not another way. Another reason we follow Jesus, he's God. And he's told us to. He's the creator. You and I are made of the same elements in many respects that seawater is made of, but he's made us out of dirt and flesh, and, and uh, all, or the, our blood is similar elements, I should say, as seawater, and then our flesh is similar elements of the earth, and God breathed life into us. Other than that, we would not have life, but he's the creator. He's God. He's the one that's told us to follow him. He's the one that's created us, and he's the one that will judge all souls at the end of the age. That's another reason we follow him. That's just wise, isn't it? How about this one? He's worthy of our follow. Revelation 5.12, Hebrews 3.3. Jesus is worthy of it. You and I aren't worthy of salvation. We're not even worthy to be called by his name, but he is worthy of us following him. He had no sin. He was perfect. And how about the last one? He loves us. And he gave himself for us on the cross as a demonstration of his love. Uh, last I checked, Muhammad didn't die for anyone. He fought, but he wasn't willing to be put on a cross. Buddha, Confucius, all of the, they, no, their death couldn't pay for your sins anyway, because they're not the way, the truth, and the life. But on top of all that, they didn't come to die for others. They, told, they came to be teaching. Here's what you should do. Follow this, follow that. Jesus taught and he gave his life. And of course, he rose it up himself on the third day. This is why we follow Christ. And that's why the last one, the cross, it's just gratitude. We follow him out of necessity. There's no other way to heaven. We follow him out of thankfulness for all that he's done. We follow him out of worship because he's worthy. 
Now, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, it says this, we love him because he first loved us. He, can, he sought us out, just like with the disciples. They were told by him, I found you. He came and selected them. He searched for them and he searched for us, just as he did with them. But it's one thing to know him, but when you really know him, to know him is to love him, and to love him is to follow and obey him. This is the point Jesus is making here. In verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Jesus is like, time out. For those of you that are still following me and don't do what I say, why bother calling me Lord? That's not the title that you're ascribing to me in your life, but yet you still seem to believe that I'm your Lord. But you don't do any of the things that I say. To know him is to love him, and to love him is to obey him and follow him. Take one more turn to another section. Let's look at this in the scriptures itself. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. The way we understand scripture is through scripture. The way we understand what this is. Uh, remember when Jesus went back to heaven, he takes his teaching and he expounds upon it to who? The apostles. And the apostles are given additional commentary, if you will, on the truths that Jesus taught. So let's look at what John, who was one of the twelve, one of the twelve apostles that becomes, or one of the twelve disciples that becomes one of the twelve apostles, and what does John write in 1 John? Starting with verse 3, we have this test. Again, if you're taking notes, talking about everyone is tested. Verse 3, 1 John chapter 3, Now by this we know we know him, if we keep his commandments. Notice what it doesn't say. By this we know we know him. We said our sinner's prayer at the age of five. By this we know we know him. We walked forward in an aisle in 1998. No. The test is we know we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, these are not my words, they're not John's words the Holy Spirit's words, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, God will never apologize for giving the whole truth, nothing but the truth, in love. This is not, this is, again, this is in love. The Lord is saying, I want you to know that if you say, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him, and by this we know that we are in him. He who, says I ab ab he who says he abides in him ought to himself also walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. What's the old commandment? Trust and obey, for there's no other way. There's never change. Abraham had to trust and obey. By faith, Abraham was saved. You and I have to trust and obey. By faith, we're saved. But the same faith that saved us is the faith that has us now follow. Saving faith becomes following faith. Saving grace becomes training grace. Saving faith becomes abiding grace. You can't manufacture grace. You receive grace. Isn't that great? But then when we get the Lord's truths, 
we're able to move forward in these things. Because His commands are the light to a world that's still in darkness. If we looked exactly like the world, why in the world would the world say, tell me about your Jesus? We become different. What are his commands, though? What has he asked us to do? We all have heard the Ten Commandments, and Jesus fulfilled them and taught them and even actually elevated beyond even what the commandments to say things like adultery, not just adultery, but even in your mind. But what are his commandments? What has he given to you, the believer, me, the believer, us as the church, us as a tree to bear fruit? Well, he said the following. Let's list, list, uh, list a few of them that he's given us. One, to love the Father through the Son. To love the Father through the Son. He told, when you pray, our Father, you begin with a love for the Father. You have a heavenly Father. Your Father may have died. You may not have a good fatherhood upbringing. Next, day, next Sunday's Father's Day. But you have a heavenly Father who is as faithful as the day is long and far beyond. To love the Father through the Son. What about this one? To watch and to pray. We've been told to watch and to pray. To watch for the Lord's return, to be in prayer, to be in prayer about everything. Pray for other people's needs, pray for ministries, pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. How about this one? To love one another. To love one another. Yeah, even in the church. Jesus said, this is how all men will truly know that you're my disciple, that you love one another. What a testimony when the world sees you loving on one another. And not just in this church, but even other believers that uh, other churches. I mean, the Lord wants to see us loving one another. What does the love look like? Well, gathering together, fellowshipping together, helping one another, serving one another. Another one, to walk in the Spirit, to walk in the Holy Spirit. Again, if you're not in, the prayer, if you're not in prayer, if you're not in the Word, we need to be confessing and turning away from sin and idolatry on a regular basis because it's always at our door, isn't it? Always. Sin, idolatry, our own flesh is always at the door, crouching at the door, the Scriptures say. It's always there. We have to be confessing those things to walk in the Spirit, to abide in Him. We're told to abide in Him, to be in His Word. We're told to be true worshipers, which tells us there are false worshipers. Jesus said He's looking for the true worshipers in the book of John. True worshipers. We're to be sharing the gospel. If you can't share the gospel yet, invite someone to church. More people get saved in church than anywhere else by far. Why is that? Because they have to sit there and listen to the Word of God. They'll give you two minutes at the water cooler, and they'll come up with some excuse like, everyone's a hypocrite and don't judge. I don't know where they've all learned this response, but it is ingrained. But if they sit... Yeah, they might walk out in the middle of one of my teachings, but they also might get saved. The Word of God. Invite someone. They will hear, and the Word will save them. Not your great testimony, not mine either. Not your great words, not mine. The words of Jesus. When you read the words, I could say nothing but read these words and have more power. What else are we supposed to be doing? We're to be discipling and training others. I haven't discipled anybody. Well, it's time. You need to be discipled yourself. I don't know how. You, you talk to me and we'll make sure 
that you can get discipled. You talk to one of our elders or one of our deacons, we'd be glad to work with you on that. Certainly being here this morning is a form of discipleship. Uh, Thursday night will be one when we're, uh, we're gathered as men, the ladies getting together. Discipleship, to be discipled and to be dis- being disi- or disciple others. Uh, to be doers of the word rather than just hearers of the word. We have a lot of hearers of the word. But to be doers of the word. Lord's called us to be that. How about this one? To be committed. Jesus said, anyone who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Forward thinking. Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward. He was committed. He said, none of these things move me. Lots of things will try and move you. The world will try and move you. Your flesh will try and move you. You'll talk yourself into moving all the time. And the Lord will say, no, 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 don't listen to you. You don't know what you was talking about. That's what the Lord will say. I don't trust me. I only trust the Word of God. Because me gets in the way of me a lot. And so does you. That's like a Dr. Seuss book or something. I know, but um, now I know why he wrote that way. It, 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 it kind of sticks to you a little bit. We're to be forgiving one another. Oh, that one's a hard one, isn't it? We almost are okay with the others until it gets to forgiveness. To be forgiving. To give grace. Do you give people the grace you want to receive? To give mercy. We just talked about that in previous weeks. Jesus covered this. Now he's reiterating, if you're going to call me Lord, are you going to do these things? Or just hear them in one ear and out the other. For every single one of these commands the Lord's given us. Praise the Lord, he's given us his Holy Spirit. Because you and I could never do any of these on our own. (laughs) We should all just give up if that's the case. But we don't have to give up because he's given us the Holy Spirit. He will move us along on the conveyor belt of grace and life. The Holy Spirit will help us to do them and to grow in them. The apple tree does not say, I will push out an apple today no matter what I do. It just grows, and it comes forth because of all the things that are coming into the tree. The good things are bringing it forth. But even though the Holy Spirit will help us, many still call him Lord. But is Christ really their Lord? Is he your Lord? You can't answer for other people. I can't answer for my own spouse. You and you alone have to know, yes, He is my Lord, my Savior. Many say, uh, yeah, he's my Lord and Savior, except for his commands. Think about it. Yeah, he's he's my Savior and Lord, I I just don't do anything he asks me to do. Can you imagine saying, I'm employed by so-and-so company, I do maybe one of the 15 things they asked me to do, maybe. Maybe you're not going to be an employee there long. And they won't care that you say, but I'm proud of the name tag, I'm proud of the company vision statement, I love everything about it, but I just don't do anything. Remember what Jesus said? He said on the rock, he said, all this man has to do is nothing. Just do nothing. Just coast through, just do absolutely nothing, but wear the name tag. No, you're not going to be employed there very long. You'll quickly be unemployed. Imagine a young Marine saying to his commanding officers, 
I don't have time for that. No, I do not have time for that. Great idea, commanding officers. Don't have time for that. I, got play, I, I made plans this weekend. You can say it once. Imagine uh, a player for the Super Bowl winning Seattle Seahawks telling Pete Carroll, I'm not doing it that way. Mm -mm. I, was, I was taught by a smarter coach than you. My college coach was 10 times smarter than you are, and I ain't doing it that way. This is the arrogance of many people today. They have no submissive spirit. They have no obedience to Christ, nor do they have obedience to men. They don't have obedience to authority in the church. They don't have obedience to anything. They're not obedient to Christ. That's why they're so rebellious at heart. And we see it in the Old Testament. Moses dealt with it. Paul deals with it. Jesus speaks of it. Why do you call me Lord? You don't obey me. You don't obey my apostles. You don't obey my teachers. Why? Go be someone else's disciple, but you're certainly not mine. I know that's heavy, but that's what Jesus is saying here. But he would rather fix it while we can fix it while we're still alive, right? Isn't that great? Wouldn't you rather have something fixed before it implodes? You know, when the, when the mechanic says, look, you cannot do this. It's going to be 178 bucks. And you're like, great. It goes right well, He says, but if you don't do it, he goes, and, I, and, I, and I'm just being totally honest, go get 10 mechanics. And they'll tell you the same thing. It'll be about a $2,000 job if you bypass this. Which, which one's wiser? Listen, my son, Solomon said. Have a soft and tender heart. Listen to these things. Don't be resistant. We always have that resistance in our spirit, don't we? Even the faithful among believers still have a little bit of resistance at all times because our flesh is always there. That's why you have to crucify the flesh and crucify those passions. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 20, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what? Many Christians don't believe that one bit. They can quote the verse. They do not believe it. They believe that Jesus meant that for somebody else, but it's not true. Because living the Christian life is so hard. It's so boring. It's so difficult. We always have to read our Bibles. We always have to pray. We have to tell people about the Lord. We have to gather with other believers. We have to serve people. This is not easy. And they have it all wrong. Because I love the way Andrew Murray, oh, he nails it. Listen to what he said. Uh, he was back in the 1800s. He said, it's not the yoke, but resistance to the yoke that makes the difficulty. The wholehearted surrender to Jesus, as at once our master and keeper, finds and secures the rest. You, you pull in every direction from the yoke, it's going to rub the neck. It's going to be heavy. It's going to hurt. The, you're going to be harnessed back in. But once you submit to the yoke, he says, it's not the yoke. It's the oxen. Because Jesus said, you were bought with a price. You are not your own anymore. Now, you either believe that or you don't believe that. But by faith, once you believe that nothing in this world can actually satisfy you but the Lord, 
See, the thing with many believers, they don't believe that. They believe that the new BMW will satisfy them. It won't, but they believe it will. They believe that if they just had that dream vacation, they would be satisfied, but they won't. They'll need another one after that one. They believe if they could just get that raise, just get that promotion, they would always, I mean always, never complain again. They will within two weeks. And Jesus said, why? Come to me. You're fighting and scrambling and racing, and you're on the, rat, uh, the, uh, the rabbit trail of chasing these things. He's like, you're chasing your tail. You never seem to catch it, and you wonder why you have no rest. Jesus said, he said you'd have rest in your soul, not rest on the couch. Rest in your soul. Because the soul, when the soul's at rest, you can rise above other things. Isn't that great? Last thing, we've got to come to a close with the foundation test. Foundation test. He says, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you who he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the floods arose, stream beat vehemently against that house. It could not shake it. When we were in Israel and we toured underneath the Temple Mount there, and you see the massive stone foundations that still exist of the original wall structure there. One specific stone, you know, I've stood beside, I think I got my picture taken by it, or it was 570 tons, 44.6 feet long. Try pulling that with your truck. That's a joke. You can't pull something that big. We don't even know how they move some of it, even today. 570 tons. But even as amazing as some of the uh, monolithic stones there are, uh, what was more amazing is when you walk all the way, what would be the north end and the northwest end corner, we found that I didn't know is that the temple, the cornerstone, was not a laid stone. The cornerstone is the mountain. The cornerstone is the mountain. They actually cut the mountain, and then they, they cut the grooves. It looks like a laid stone, but it's not. It's the mountain. And when the cornerstone is the mountain, you've got yourself a firm foundation. You know, Titus destroyed the top of the temple, but the foundation's still there. Someday the temple will be rebuilt because the foundation is there. Isn't that great? The foundation is strong. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.6, Therefore it is also contained in the Scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will not be put to shame. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the mountain not made by hands. He's the rock not made by hands. He is the cornerstone. He's the only thing you can anchor your life to, and I can anchor my life to. Jesus said, the wise man, not only will he be faithful, not only will he bear fruit, not only will he follow me, but his foundation will be secure in me and on me. Two foundations here, and one's no foundation at all. One is sand, and one is the rock. There's one rock foundation but let me tell you, there are many sand foundations. Hundreds, thousands, as many as you can think of. 
There's a, sand, there's a sand, Satan will sell anyone the sand foundation that fits their liking. You're a beach kind of guy, he's got a sand, sand foundation for you. You're a city kind of person, he's got a sand, sand foundation for you. You are a pleasure seeker, he's got a sand foundation for you. You're after money, he's got one for you. You're after power, got one for you. You name it, he's got a sand foundation in his, open up, which one do you want? Jesus, he says, I only have one foundation, it's me. What about your other color choices? Me. What about your other options? Me. What? But I tell you what, if you, you stand on me, you'll never be destroyed. That sounds like a no-lose proposition. The other one sounds like a guaranteed loss. Because Jesus said the storms will absolutely come. The storms of life will come. What happens when those storms of life come? When you have cancer, or you've lost your job, or your kid walks away, and all these different things. What rock will you be on, or will you not be on one at all? And you washed away. So many people have walked away because troubles have come. They said, well, if this is the God that I have, then I don't need it. And they weren't, they weren't really on the rock of Christ. They weren't on the rock, the foundation. Jesus called the rock of Christ in 1 Corinthians 10, 4. So people are trusting in a wide variety of sand. Some it's their job and their career. They quickly forget Enron. And people like them. By the way, there's, another, there's more Enrons out there. Really? Oh, yeah. They're out there. We just don't know yet. But they know. Some of them actually probably know themselves. There's more 2008 collapses out there. They're trusting in their job. They're trusting in their homes. They're trusting in their health. They're trusting in their health, and yet I've seen healthy people die. And I've seen healthy people get sick real quick. They're trusting in technology. They're trusting in wealth. They're trusting in possessions. All these sand foundations, Jesus said, none of those things can help you in the day of trouble. None of them. Only the rock of your salvation. I was reading an article not long ago about a rash of suicides, get this, among high-ranking, high-position, high-profile bankers in New York and London. This is all fairly recent stuff. A rash of suicides. You'd say, why? They have it all. They're driving $100,000 Jaguars. They've got penthouses in London and, and New York. They've got the nightlife. They've got all, but they also have stress that you would not believe because when you're managing millions, in some cases billions of dollars, little moves, and you get a lot of pressure from above. And they get, they get more worried about, oh, my net worth went from $100 million down to, you know, uh, Half of that, and some of them take their lives for that. They're trusting in all the wrong thing. They don't have peace. They have no rest for their souls. They're weary and heavy laden, unsaved. We have saved people that are also still weary when they shouldn't be either. Proverbs eleven twenty eight tells us, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Many don't believe in their own sound fa- they, many don't even believe in their own sand, sand foundations. They really don't. They'll tell you about their sand foundation as if they believe it's rock, but they actually don't themselves believe it's rock. They seem to know. Uh, there was an L.A. Times article. What, they, what people will do, they kind of lie to themselves or talk themselves into things to cover their own unsettled conscience. But in the L.A. Times, uh, there was an article, 78% of Americans 
78% of Americans believe we're in serious moral decline, and yet 96% of parents feel they're doing a good job teaching and training morals in their children. They know somebody's on a sand foundation, it's just not them. They know everyone else is on sand, it's just not them. And so Jesus, he wants us to examine us, not just, I don't sit here and talk to these things with ten fingers pointed at the world and you guys, I always have to examine me, you always have to examine you. What's your foundation? What are you really sitting on? What are you really standing on? What have you built upon when the storms of life come or when the end of the age comes? Because both will come. Helen Rosevere, she was a British medical missionary in the Congo when the uprising among the Mau Mau revolutionaries invaded and she was attacked. This pure, godly, and gracious, innocent woman, she was assaulted in every way, humiliated, and hanging on for her life to a faith that would not be shaken. While recovering from that horrible event, Helen and the Lord grew closer together than ever. She wrote a statement in the form of a question that every person needs to ask himself or herself. And she said this, this was her question to everyone. Can you thank me, capital M-E, that's the Lord, can you thank me for trusting you with this experience even if I never tell you why? Christian, believer, the Lord Jesus is saying, I've told you the truth. I've told you what you must do. Will you trust me even if I don't give you more information than what I've already given you in my word and in the testimony of the saints that have gone before you? Is that enough? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that your word is enough. Your word is faithful. Your word is true. And we know, Lord, that you cannot lie. You're not a man. You give us these things that we can grow, that we can be fruitful, that you prune us, that you chasten us. Lord, that you would stir us in these last days in which we live. You desire that we would walk, not heavy laden, but with a light burden, that your yoke truly is light. Because you'll give us the desires of our heart. And when our desires become your desires, Lord, then the desires of this world just fade away. And what a blessed rest it is. And Lord, I ask that you would bestow that upon all of us as we surrender ourselves to you. And I just want, as we close in a song, before we close in song, I'm going to ask anyone, that, if you would like to, say, I, I want to recommit that my surrender, that my foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ above everything else. And if he needs to, he can reprioritize me, my life, my time, because I just want to bear fruit until he returns. You say, that's, that's my commitment. Just stand right where you're at. I'm standing. I'm standing right now. You don't have to stand, and, I, and you know, but this, isn't, this doesn't mean you haven't been following. Some of you have. But it means, no, no this is important, Lord. I want to do exactly what you would have me to do. And, I, and I, this isn't to try and um, use peer pressure or anything like that. Uh, we only have one source of direction, 
and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? doesn't matter what man thinks. doesn't matter what you and I think. But it's, it's comforting to know that if we really are surrendered and submitted, we'll bear fruit. You won't have to squeeze another pear out. Try really hard to, to be a flower that smells good. Flowers don't try and smell. That's what Jesus said. They don't toil. They just smell great. They don't spin around in circles. They just grow and the, the petals burst forth because they wait upon the Lord. Amen? And that's a good thing. You know, these things, these things are a good warning to people that aren't in the Lord, but those of us in the Lord, they're quite comforting to know that I'm, I'm really glad that the rock that we're on, you know, if the whole economy just collapses, I know that my faith isn't built on the U.S. dollar. It's built on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that could happen, I believe it will happen in our lifetime. I really do. And I'm not saying that just flippantly. I, I, I look at the facts. Everything in Deuteronomy tells me, uh, and, and Ezekiel tells me, there's no way we can do things that no other nation's got, gotten away with. It just doesn't work that way. But I tell you what, the believer in Christ, we're on the rock. Amen? So as we worship, I'll just come back up. It'll do two stanzas maybe, and I'll come back up and just lead us in a closing prayer. But just worship from your heart and just thank the Lord that, hey, Lord, I just, in your own heart, simple word, not some long, drawn-out prayer, just simple word, Lord, forgive me if I've not been committed. My hand got off the plow. I'm committed to following you. Help me to grow. 